So typically what you would need to do is buy as a tenant in common in the property, which means that, you know, as a 1031 investor, your name is on the deed, right? Or your entity is on the deed. So that's typically what you need to do in a 1031 exchange. And that bumps up against the syndication because that's not what they typically want. They cannot just, you know, buy into the entity. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategies podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we're talking about 1031 exchanges and how you can 1031 into a syndication. This is a step-by-step process of what you can do to sell a property, defer the tax bill indefinitely, and turn your investment into a passive investment via a syndication. Our guest is Michael Brady from Madison 1031. He's very experienced in this field. so. We're getting a great insight into the 1031 exchange process here. For those of you who don't know, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Love talking about investing. And that's why I started this show to connect with other people who have also have a passion as well for generating passive wealth by investing in real estate and using all the tax advantages that we have available to us. Thank you for tuning in today. If you're somebody out there who's looking for a great tax advantage as a real estate investor and a way to turn an active investment into a passive investment, this process might just work for you. Once again, our guest is Michael Brady from Madison 1031. Here we go. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fantastic. Happy to talk 1031 exchanges with you. Uh, For those out there who don't know your background, could you introduce yourself to us a bit before we get into the topic? Yeah, sure. So uh, by training, I am what we call a dirt lawyer, right? I'm a real estate lawyer. I've been practicing real estate and corporate transactional law, a little bit of estate planning for over 26 years. Uh, Currently, I serve as executive vice president for Madison 1031, which is a qualified intermediary for 1031 exchanges. I've been in this space since 2005, almost exclusively. Uh, I run a couple of qualified intermediary companies during that time. I was also uh, the general counsel for title insurance company. And um, but day to day, my my role is talking to people about 1031 exchanges and how they can use it to defer their taxes and buy bigger and more profitable property. Cool. We love it. All about deferring the taxes. It's the biggest expense that most of us will pay in our lifetime cumulatively. So anything we can do to reduce that bill or, or push it into the future is probably a good thing. So, um, you know, you've got a, a strategy with your 1031 exchanges for syndication investors. Let's get into it. I, I don't even remember what it's called. So give, <laughs> us, give us the... Uh, yeah, just I guess a, a little background with what the problem is, sure. right? So you have you have syndicated, you have all types of syndications out there, and many of your your listeners uh, might be interested in syndication, or maybe they're syndicating deals now. And typically, what I mean by a syndication is you have a syndicator that's somebody who's out there, they're hustling, you know, they're going to find a property, and then they're going to get some passive investors to help them acquire it, right? So the typical syndicated structure is you have the, the syndicator he or she who finds the property, and then you have the passive investors who you know are basically putting the money up. Now, the syndicator often puts up little or none of their own money to buy the deal, right? They're putting in the sweat equity. 
finding the property, they're finding the investors, they're going to manage the property, you know, and ultimately when uh, the property cycles through and it's time to dispose of the property, they're going to be responsible for selling it, find the buyer and, and all that other stuff. The syndicator typically makes money a couple of different ways. You know, they typically will earn some money on the acquisition of the asset. They'll earn a management fee. Uh, and then they often, you know, will get some, um, some participation in the profits after preferred return to the limited partners and the percentage of the upside when the property is ultimately sold. So 1031 investors, on the other hand, are very good investors for somebody who's looking for somebody to participate in their project. I always say to uh, my people, my clients in the real estate industry, the brokers, you know, 1031 investors are some of the best clients you'll ever have, right? In this economy, number one, they have cash. They just sold the property. They've got cash available that they need to deploy. Number two, uh, they have motivation. If they don't spend the cash, they're going to pay taxes. And those taxes can be upwards of 30%, depending on where they are and where their property is. And third, uh, they have time constraints, right? So 1031 exchanges have very, very strict timelines. You have to find a property within 45 days from the closing of your sale. You got to close on it within 180 days. So that doesn't leave a lot of time to kind of, you know, wiggle around and kick the tires and, you know, ultimately not do something. Uh, so you like 1031 investors when, when you're looking for capital. The problem is 1031 investor has to buy a property interest. Okay. So they're selling appreciated property. So they might be selling a multifamily or maybe they're selling an office building or you know, really anything in the investment property arena. But to defer those taxes, they have to replace it with a like kind property, meaning it has to be other investment real estate. When you buy into a syndicated deal, you are typically not buying the property. You're buying what's called a partnership interest in the syndicated entity. A syndicated entity is usually a limited liability company with many different investors in it. Um, and so there's a big case body of case law that says that buying a partnership interest, first of all, is specifically excluded under statute for many, many years, uh, does not qualify for 1031 exchanges. So typically what you would need to do is buy as a tenant in common in the property, which means that, you know, as a 1031 investor, your name is on the deed, right? Or your entity is on the deed. So that's typically what you need to do in a 1031 exchange. And that bumps up against the syndication because that's not what they typically want. And they cannot just, you know, buy into the entity. So you need, as a syndicator, if you're bringing in 1031 money, you're typically going to need them to be a co-owner of the actual property. So where does this create problems? Well, there's a revenue procedure, which, you know, for the accountants and the attorneys out there, it's Revenue Procedure 2002-22, uh, which provides some guidelines. It's not a safe harbor as some of the tax jargon we use. It's some guidelines is what the IRS looks at in determining whether a relationship is truly a tenant common relationship as opposed to a partnership, right? So just having legal title in your name is not enough. You have to kind of have these things in your relationship with your other investors. And that requires unanimity for many decisions, including selling the property, financing the property, you know, and then some other key management issues. Additionally, for uh, a tenant and common investor uh, under the revenue procedure, you should have equity participation and profit participation. Uh, well, your equity and your profit participation should be equal, meaning if you put 25% into the deal, you should earn 25% of the profits, mm-hmm. right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your typical syndicated entity, that's not the way it works. 
source, right? You could put right. 25% into the syndicated entity and the syndicator would put, you know, very little equity in or, or none. Uh, you know, she might wind up receiving, you know, a 5% interest on the back end and on the profits. Okay. So it, there's some, you know, friction there between what you want in your syndicated entity and what's required under the tenant common, you know, guidelines. So, you know, that's where you have an issue. And I'm going to say up front, what I'm about to propose, you're not going to do for a very small investor, right? So somebody coming in, you know, with 2% of the equity, you're not going to jump through these hoops. Uh, but if you needed, let's say 25% of the equity, maybe that makes sense. So, you know, my example, you have an entity, you have, uh, you know, you have somebody who's a syndicator, uh, they set up their syndicated entity, they're going to buy 75% of the property in that LLC. Okay, the syndicated LLC. Within that LLC, you can do whatever you want. Split the profits however you want. You know, um, you know, the syndicator can get their back end, they can get their percentage of the profits, they can get a management fee, all those good things. For the 25%, you bring them in as a co-owner, okay, as a tenant in common. So now you have two entities that own the property, the 1031 investor and the syndicated entity. Okay. They have a tenant in common agreement, which has all the things we need under Revenue Procedure 2002-22. Okay. And you operate that way for a number of years. If it's a multi-year project and you're going to go out 10 years and own this property together, uh, then maybe, you know, two or three years afterwards, maybe then you kind of fold the 1031 investor into syndicate uh, by having him, you know, deed his interest into, you know, the syndicate. Hmm. You know, so that's typically the way the structure is laid out for the syndicator. You know, some of the things they can do, they can still earn a management fee for managing the property from everybody. Okay. You should, you know, the fee should bear a relationship to the actual services performed. And they could even be the manager of the 1031 investors LLC to give them some control over that entity. You know, so that's something I always recommend you talk to your, your tax and legal advisors to make sure they're comfortable with, but that's something that seems to uh, that people seem to be doing when they're structuring these transactions. And that, that's essentially it. You know, it's not a panacea, but it's a possible solution if this situation calls for it. Okay. So uh, regarding the timing of all of this, one of the issues with, now I've never done a 1031 exchange, but uh, my understanding is when you're going to do one, you have to identify that you're, you want to do the 1031 before you sell your property. So you have to work with a qualified intermediary and everything right? Um, and identify investments that you, you're going to make and you have a, a window of time to actually like close on those after you sell your property that you're getting out of. So, you know, what, what's like that timing of all of this and organizing it with a syndicator and then you know, if, if you go into a 1031 exchange or you're, you're going to do a 1031 exchange and you have your own properties lined up, but say they fall through, can you then, all right, scramble to find a syndicator that'll, you know, take your half million or million dollars uh, because you want to still complete the 1031 exchange? Like, can you still use this as a, as a, a get backup. out of jail, taxless <laughs> backup <laughs> option? Yeah. Yeah, you know, so let me break that down a little bit. So uh, the deadlines you have, you're right, are very, very strict. So you only have from the close. First of all, you have to set up the exchange before you go to closing. So that's very, very important. You know, as you mentioned, you know, I do have investors call me up and they say, "Hey, Mike, you know, we have uh, have a closing 
uh, we have a property we want to do a 1031 exchange on. And I say, great, when's the closing? And they'll say, oh, we closed two weeks ago. <laughs> and, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's too late. You know, the toothpaste is out of the tube. You're not going to uh, be able to do the exchange at that point. Sure. Um, so you set up before closing, you get us involved early, get your accountant involved early. Can't stress that enough. So now you go to closing, you only have 45 days to identify the property that you want to purchase. And you can buy multiple properties and you can identify typically up to three properties regardless of the value. Okay. So that gives you some flexibility, you know, some backups. Once the 45 days passes, however, that's it. You know, you're either going to buy something you identified or you're going to pay taxes. Okay. Um, and you have a total of 180 days from the closing of the sale to actually close on any of those properties that you identify. Okay, so it is kind of important, you know, you don't have to have a contract in 45 days, but you really wanna kind of have something locked down as much as possible in those 45 days to make sure that, you know, you you have it, you know, you're not gonna lose it and, you know, be stuck at the end of the day holding a big tax bill. <laughs> so, you know, so, when you're doing what I just discussed, you probably want to plan that well in advance. And so I would not count on that as a last minute, you know, day 44 identification because they're just not, they're not out there and they do require a lot of structuring. And, you know, your typical syndicator, if you walk up to them and pitch this for a small amount of money, they're not going to do it. You know, it just doesn't make sense for them. You know, so usually when we do those types of transactions, they're planned well in advance, maybe even, even in advance of the closing of the sale. There are options for people that, you know, want a backup in a 1031 exchange to where they name maybe two properties and they have a backup. There's something called the Delaware Statutory Trust, which I don't know if you're familiar with, um, which is kind of you buy a fractional interest in an institutional grade property. It's pretty much any property sector. They're sold as a security. And so you need to be an accredited investor to invest in these. So assuming that you qualify for those, you know, under those accredited investor rules, that's not a bad option. So you can buy a passive interest, similar to, like I said, a tenant in common interest, but it's a little bit different structure in a larger project somebody else manages and hopefully you're just collecting a check at the end of every month. Yeah, I mean, uh, like what you said about um, syndicators not wanting to take a, a smaller uh, check is it would be, this would be a lot of paperwork, a lot of setup and a, a lot of hassle to go yeah. through for a hundred or even $200,000. It would have to be, uh, something much more compelling yeah. to to do, um, right? So and that's why the the Delaware Statutory Trust you can get in for as little as a hundred thousand dollars. You know, <laughs> so that's why it's not a bad option for those people. Interesting. So, regarding the, the say the cash flows of you set up this uh, this different this entity set up where you have you know two separate organizations, I suppose, that are owning the property, syndication or syndicator you know, control all of the the cash flows and, you know, g handle the distributions and everything because if the 1031 exchange investor is still you know, having to, you know, do a lot of this management and everything, then it, it goes from uh, investment to not being a passive investment uh, pretty quickly. So, you know, what are the 1031 investors' options for, you know, farming out some of the roles and responsibilities to yeah. the syndicator. Yeah, no, they can sit back, you know, so you can have the syndicator manage the entire project. So they'll have to, you know, manage the cash flow a little bit differently. So you'll have to make sure the 1031 investor is getting, you know, profits, you know, um, you know, in cash flow that equals what their participation in the deal is. Um, you know, as I said, if they put in 25%, they have to get 25% of the profits. 
Um, but they can be the manager. Syndicator can be the manager. And you know, the 1031 investor still is going to be a relatively passive investor. Absolutely. So okay. there's really no difference in that, that aspect. Okay. Okay. So I, I, as I'm thinking about this, I'm just kind of trying to, in my head, think of the best process for, or what would your recommended best process be for setting up the pins so that you can then just knock them down? Because it sounds like there are a lot of potential pitfalls here. And, you know, unless we go into this with a, a real clear step-by-step, -step, here's what I'm going to do type of plan that we're going to mess something up along the way and just have a huge tax bill that we have to deal with and not be able to, you know, do a 1031. So, you know, if, if from the investor's perspective, what's kind of the best order of operations from may, I don't know, six months before we're thinking about selling to, to get it, start getting this set up. Like what's your recommendation? Yeah. So my recommendation, and this is not a requirement, but the recommendation is, especially in, and we'll see obviously with what everything's going on in the world right now with COVID-19, you know, things, yeah. uh, <laughs> things are made changes is uh, not to date the episode, but that, that's where we are right now. Uh, you know, so the, the, the economy is in a, in a big state of flux, but assuming that we're, you know, operating as we have in the last couple of years, it is kind of a tight market for buyers of real property. You know, so it's a bit of a seller's market. Everything I hear is their biggest issue is I can't find anything that's to buy. Brokers are telling you I have no inventory, you know, cash flows are compressed. And that's, that's the world we've been operating in a very long time. So I think it's, critical that somebody who's looking to sell their property should start shopping to buy a property either before or immediately upon listing their own property. Okay. Mm. Because you don't want to get into a situation where you're relying on those 45 days. You do have the ability to do what we call a reverse 1031 exchange. So if for some reason you find a property you absolutely have to have, and you're, you're not ready to close on your sale, you can buy first and then sell. If the structure is more complex, it's more expensive. It requires actually us typically as the qualified intermediary uh, setting up an entity called an exchange accommodation title holder to buy the property on your behalf and hold it until you can sell. Okay, so that's a possibility. So you don't have to necessarily worry about that. Obviously, you have to have the financing, the cash available to yeah, do that. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem, right? Yeah. But legally, you can do it. Uh, so assuming if you had some cash available, had a good source of financing, you know, maybe you could do that, but start shopping early, find the property, line it up, um, as soon as possible. Uh, I also recommend critical talk to your accountant early in the process. I cannot tell you, I do seminars nationwide, uh, continuing education seminars for attorneys and accountants. And I always ask the accountants, I, I'd say, you know, I'm on your side. I always tell our people to talk to you before they do anything. And I said, by show of hands, how many people have talked to their clients before they did a 1031 exchange and no hands go up. I just get a lot of grunts. <laughs> I get some laughter, you know, um, but you do not want your accountant to find out about your 1031 exchange on April 14th, right? In right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so get them involved early. They can help you immeasurably. Uh, they can analyze cash flow as far as and projections on what you're buying. They can help you calculate cap rates. They can tell you whether or not you know, you're buying a good investment. So get the accountant involved early. 
and then make sure we are involved certainly before closing. We like to get set up in a 1031 exchange at least a week or two before you close, but you can start the conversation with us much earlier to make sure you're aware of the rules and you know that what you're doing is uh, makes sense. So that's really the steps. And then once you kind of have a plan, you know, hopefully you'll find a buyer for your property pretty close to when you're ready to go on your acquisition. And then it should be relatively seamless. You know, if you can, uh, you know, it's a relatively seamless as far as real estate closings are relatively seamless, you know. Uh, but yeah, do your due diligence early. You know, don't get into the 45 days and still be analyzing cash flow or doing a phase one if you're buying some sort of, you know, uh, commercial property that's subject to environmental problems. You know, you want to have that stuff locked down as early as possible. So really the number one recommendation, which I think goes through all this is prepare, 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 and do it early. Nice. I like that. And it's interesting to hear that uh, accountants don't hear from their clients in advance of this, even though they should. So that is, uh, that is definitely good to know. So yeah, nice. Uh, so right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Michael, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Go ahead. All right. Great. First one. What is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Uh, the best investment. Okay. I'm going to give you two answers. One is my paddleboard. I love my mm. paddleboard. It gives me immeasurable joy. <laughs> uh, but number two, I, th I think for me personally, uh, you know, I've done some investing on the side. Um, I can't stress enough in a good economy anyway, the value of retirement savings and 401ks and then, you know, getting that tax deferral over the lifetime, over the course of your lifetime. If you have younger people in your audience, um, as soon as the economy recovers and you're able to contribute to any type of retirement investment you can have, because that stuff just compounds. And, you know, it's just, if you can kind of tighten your belt a little bit, not live on all your capital, the compounding of money is just invaluable, you know, and then you have some freedom to go and buy things like real estate and, you know, other investments, which will give you a higher return. Nice. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah. So during, uh, this is many years ago, this will date me, during one of the tech stock booms, there was a company uh, which is out of business now, so I'll mention it. It's called Zybernot. Okay. Zybernot made wearable PCs, right? So this is back in the day, right? This was back in like 1990, I want to say 1997 or so. And so this was a time when, you know, Amazon stock went from 12 to 100 AOL to date myself even further, where you could buy that for $5 and it went up to like, you know, 200, whatever it was. And so I thought this was going to be the next, uh, next AOL. Um, and so I bought it at $6 a share. Um, it, and actually this was to me, this was the predecessor to Google glass, which I guess also didn't really take it off, but yeah. um, <laughs> you know, so it, it went from six, uh, I watched it go all the way up to 30. Um, and then it immediately plunged down to three. Uh, so I was, you know, I had lost money, it, but then it rebounded, it went back up to 10. And so I doubled down and bought more. Oh, and, then, man. <laughs> and then they ultimately, uh, at some point, many years later, I uh, liquidated that and uh, you took a nice loss against some other profits I made. But that was, that just kind of shows you that, you know, um, you know, investing shouldn't be gambling. You should, you know, it should have a, a good basis for uh, free investments. And it wasn't a lot of money, but it, it, it certainly, uh, it taught me a lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Right. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, uh, my favorite question at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in investing? 
in investing. Um, I'm going to put this on a, a more personal level is that I think there, it's invaluable to make sure the people you are doing business with are good people. First and foremost, okay? So yes, you can look at the projected returns. You can look for you know any kind of due diligence you can do, but you wanna make sure that the people you're doing business with at the end of the day are going to do the right thing because you can protect yourself with agreements. You can protect yourself with due diligence, but at the end of the day, if the person you're dealing with on the other side of the investment is not a good person, you can get hurt. You know, mm. because people will disregard contracts. People will do not, you know, you know, do things other than what they agreed upon. And, uh, you know, and at the end of the day, there's just not enough you know, hours in the day, not enough time in our life to deal with people who are going to aggravate you. Uh, yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you want to um, know their, their judgment and their character and know that they're going to make the right decision. Uh, even when the contract doesn't necessarily dictate it. Correct. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, I definitely appreciate everything today. A lot of great lessons. I, I really love the 1031 exchange and the question comes up all the time of can I 1031 exchange into a syndication? And we answered that question with at least uh, a couple of answers today. So that's fantastic. If folks want to learn more about you and your company, where can they get in touch? Yeah, so I'm all, I'm on LinkedIn. You can check me out on LinkedIn. Uh, Michael Brady. I think it might be under Michael S. Brady, but you'll find me. I'm there. Um, and email is really the best place to contact me. I always say I'm more than happy to talk about deals and uh, transactions, even if we're not involved on the QI side. If you have questions, feel free to hit me up on email. It's mbrady, like a bunch, at madison1031.com. That's typically the easiest way to get to me. Nice. And links and everything will be in the show notes. So folks want to check that out as well in case you missed or uh, rewind and listen to it, whatever you want to do. Well, <laughs> thanks again for everything. And thank you for joining, uh, joining me this morning. And I, I hope everything's going well for you, uh, considering the coronavirus and, and when this goes live. I hope everything is going well for our listeners out there, uh, depending on where the, the coronavirus craziness ends up being at that point. Yeah, likewise. Stay healthy, folks. Well, everybody, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Very appreciated. It helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the fold. Thanks for tuning in once again. I hope you're healthy, wealthy, and wise today. Thank you for tuning in, and we will talk to you on the next episode. Bye-bye.